Welcome to our podcast, Heart Failure Morning Commute. More heart failure drugs, more choices. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with That Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by independent educational grants from Boinger Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, an Eli Lillian company, and from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation. In this episode, Dr. Deepak Bhatt and Dr. Javed Butler discuss the many therapies that are now available for the treatment of heart failure, who are the best candidates for these medications, and what potential side effects to watch for. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash heartfailure5. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Bott is Executive Director of Interventional Cardiovascular Programs, Brigham and Women's Hospital Heart and Vascular Center, and a Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Boston. Dr. Butler is Professor of Medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of Mississippi, Jackson. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Bott will begin our discussion. David, welcome back. There are quite a few new therapies that are important additions to our heart failure armamentarium. Let's take a look at these and how they might be integrated into heart failure management. We've discussed quite a bit already about SGLT2 inhibitors, though it's certainly worth talking even more about them. They're really a major advance in the world of heart failure. We've talked about, and we'll talk about a little bit more, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists. Um, we should talk about ARNI, that is angiotensin receptor and neprilysin receptor uh, inhibitors. We've talked a little bit about those already. Uh, and then we should uh, discuss soluble guanylate cyclase stimulators and cardiac myosin activators. So a lot of stuff to cover here, uh, not to mention how to integrate them all. But um, do you want to just quickly review for the audience what these key classes of medicines are and how they fit into current practice? Yeah, we'll be uh, delighted to. So, you know, we are sort of in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, uh, which, uh, as we discussed, that concept is almost sort of now extended uh, from the the traditional 40% or less all the way up to less than 50%. Uh, we, we sort of think about uh, foundational therapies that in the absence of uh, contraindication or intolerance uh, or, or accessibility issues should be really given to uh, all patients. Uh, so uh, at this point, I think most of the, the guidelines and the experts would say that uh, in terms of the RAS modulation, valsartan sacubitril or angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor is the preferred drug. Uh, remember, it's one pill, with two, but, but two drugs, and we tend to forget that. So angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor is not ACE inhibitor or ARB. I mean, you know, it has been head-to-head compared against ACE inhibitor and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction with a substantially more mortality, morbidity benefit with RNA on top of ACE inhibitor, and it's two separate drugs. It's it's valsartan and a neprilysin inhibitor, sacubitril. So, so in terms of the RAS inhibitor, that's sort of the first-line therapy. Then beta blocker, but again, evidence-based beta blocker. So carvedilol, uh, long-acting metoprolol or bisoprolol, not any beta blocker. Uh, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist is spironolactone or uh, aplerinone, although more data with uh, selective uh, uh, non-steroidal MRAs like phenerinone is, is coming down the pike. Uh, and then the two SGLT2 inhibitors uh, that have been uh, approved and have uh, dapagliflozin and ampagliflozin uh, uh, as well. So this is the foundational therapy, uh, these four drugs. 
Then in some specific cases, we have some specific therapies. So for instance, on foundational therapy, if somebody is not doing well or is unable to you know, uh, tolerate foundational therapy and, and develop what we are calling a worsening heart failure, which is either uh, requiring hospitalization or recent hospitalization within the past six months or requiring outpatient IV diuretics. So worsening heart failure. Uh, in addition to this foundational therapy, we have uh, another alternative, a soluble guanylate cyclic stimulator called uh, uh, Vericiguat. So this drug has a really sort of an interesting mechanism of action. Uh, uh, soluble guanylate cyclase is really sort of a ubiquitous uh, mediator for uh, improving uh, cardiac, vascular, and other organ function through mediating the, the nitric oxide biology. So nitric oxide uh, converts uh, in the absence of soluble guanylate cyclase, uh, GTP, to CGMP, and then CGMP have this down uh, uh, signaling for, for PKG all across the body. Uh, but in diseases like heart failure, where you have oxidative stress, uh, your nitric oxide is really not bioavailable. So what this drug does, it has dual action. It, is, it, it increases the sensitivity of the uh, soluble guanylate cyclase to whatever nitric oxide is available. But even if you don't have much nitric oxide available, it directly stimulates soluble guanylate cyclase to cause uh, to, to, to increase uh, uh, CGMP. Uh, production. So there was a trial done called Victoria trial uh, that basically showed that in really high risk patients, 35 to 40 percent one year of vent rate, uh, this drug lowered the absolute risk by about uh, uh, 4 percent, uh, 4.2 percent absolute risk reduction, 10 percent relative risk reduction for cardiovascular death, heart failure, hospitalization. So in those patients beyond the foundational therapy who develop worsening heart failure, we have this uh, option as well. And then the last drug you mentioned, card cardiac myosin activators like omocaptive mecarbil, it increases the force of contraction uh, of the heart. The trial was done, but this drug has not been approved. It has not gone through the regulatory process. Uh, so it's not available in the market. Uh, there was, uh, uh, it did hit its uh, primary endpoint uh, overall. It looks like the data are, are a little bit more convincing for those patients at the lower end of ejection fraction. So not only HEF-REF, but even within HEF-REF, those with ejection fraction uh, that were on the lower end, uh, say mid-20s uh, or lower, uh, uh, tended to benefit a little bit more with cardiac myosin activators. So the jury is out a little bit on this. Uh, as to what happens with the regulators, and it's not available in the market right now. Yeah, that's a really nice uh, summary. And with respect to you know these two latter drugs you mentioned, well, uh, omicaptive, uh, we have to have regulatory approval for Verisigua. Um, where do you see that drug being initiated? Do you see that as something that uh, would be initiated as an inpatient, as an outpatient, either of the above? Yeah, so that's a really sort of an insightful question, right? So we are trying to target uh, worsening heart failure biology and whether somebody's in the hospital or gets outpatient IV diuretic, uh, those are sort of, you know, healthcare and, and clinicians' decision of where somebody gets treated, but that's nothing to do with the biology. So the biology here is that uh, you're sort of failing on the therapy on which you used to be stable. Now that failing may be because you have, taken everything that you possibly uh, could, uh, or you've taken everything that you can possibly tolerate. So even if you're not on some medications, which are foundational medication, but it's because your creatinine, your blood pressure, your potassium, whatever, your, your clinician is not, not comfortable giving you more than what you are. So in those patients uh, that are sort of failing uh, these standard therapies, 
then regardless, if you are reaching out to give outpatient IV diuretic, send the patient to the emergency room, admit the patient for decompensated heart failure, those are the kind of patients uh, where this drug is available in the market right now, and, and I would consider uh, uh, giving it to them. Now, interestingly enough, uh, this biology, you know, this trial, Victoria trial, was done in worsening heart failure patients uh, because we are targeting the highest risk population, but this target is equally suitable uh, to less sick patients as well. You don't have to have worsening heart failure to benefit from this drug, but of course we need a trial to prove that. So there's a large outcomes trial going on, uh, more upstream and more stable heart failure patients. But today, if you are failing, and by failing, I mean symptomatic, you know, you're just not doing well on your standard medical therapy, uh, giving Verisiguad uh, is, a, is a pretty reasonable opportunity. And anything to uh, watch out for by way of side effect? Yeah, so that's another very insightful question because that is sort of the, the value add here. So first, uh, Verisiguad was given uh, to the lowest EGFR patient population of any heart failure trial ever done. So it went down to GFR of 15 uh, so really down even more so than the SGLT2 inhibitor trials, uh, because these are the patients who are not only the sickest, not only the ones most likely to develop worsening heart failure, uh, but are the ones uh, where people shy away, uh, appropriately so, with other RAS inhibitors. In fact, MRAs are contraindicated in GFR uh, less than 30 as well. Uh, so what's interesting is that if you look at all the reasons for which other medical therapies for heart failure sometimes are not tolerated or not given, so hyperkalemia, not an issue with the Resequat. Blood pressure, very well tolerated. 90% of the patients in the trial got to the maximum dose of 10 milligram. And again, blood pressure remained pretty stable all across the trial. Uh, no changes in creatinine, and the benefit was seen across the spectrum uh, of, uh, of uh, GFR in this uh, trial as well. Uh, so all the reasons for which other medical therapies are not tolerated, this drug is very well tolerated. So, so safety profile uh, is actually one of the strengths of this, uh, of this drug. Yeah, those are great points. Similarly, with respect to heart rate uh, and a patient who might already, say, be on a beta blocker and have a lowish heart rate. Uh, this is a drug that could be added on in that circumstance as well for the patient that needs uh, more heart failure therapy. So you're right, the side effect profile really does um, align nicely with drugs that are already available uh, where you need to do more for that particular patient. Um, how would you integrate these different therapies into current practice? Do you, I, I've got to say the data I've seen for all these different agents uh, maybe not so much beta blockers in, in, in ACE or ARB at this point in time, but certainly for ARNI uh, and SGLT2 inhibitors and even MRAs, I mean, spironolactone is uh, available, of course, as a generic, but, but for all these classes, there's still a lot of underutilization. Every registry uh, has shown that. I mean, a lot of work even you and I have done together with the American Heart Association get with the guideline. Heart failure registry is just, uh, it's been persistent over years. There's a lot of underutilization uh, what do you think can be done to improve the implementation science of things here? Yeah, so boy, I mean that's that's sort of the really really important points that 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 you made, Deepak. You know, so uh, medicine is a, is a, is a two front war, right? So you know, on one front you have to generate evidence to know what to do to the patient, but on the other hand, you also have to then do it in order to uh, have our patient population uh, benefit from the therapies. And I think we we do pretty well on the first. 
uh, in terms of the evidence generation, but unfortunately we don't do too well uh, on the on the uh, other side of implementing these therapies. And even if you look at uh, recent uh, data, so the one data that I really, really like to quote is the CHAMP registry. And the reason I like to quote CHAMP registry uh, is one, it's very contemporary. So uh, we're talking about 2018 data. Uh, it was uh, across 150 sites across US. So academic sites, private practice sites, cardiology sites, primary care sites. So really a good broad sort of a perspective. Outpatient, but these sites actually were interested enough in heart failure to participate in a heart failure registry. So this is now a captured group of people. And we specifically asked them that if there is any contraindication or intolerance, please let us know so that we can have a pure denominator. And what did we find in over 3,500 patients? What we found was that triple therapy, so this is just a tad bit before the SGLT2 inhibitor. So we're talking about triple therapy, racinibitor, beta blocker, and MRA. Triple therapy was used in less than a third of the patient, in fact, less than a quarter of the patient. And triple therapy at appropriate doses was used in single digits. So there's a 90 plus percent opportunity of not getting on appropriate doses of all drugs and 75% plus patients were not on triple therapy. Of course, we can imagine what quadruple therapy will be. The point I'm trying to make here is that these kind of gaps are not explained either by cost or by tolerance. Now, we have been uh, you know, using all generic drugs and heart failure for a long time, ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, and, and MRAs. Now we have two drugs which are costly, right? SGLT2 inhibitors and ARNI. But let's first get the science correct. Remember, ACE inhibitors and beta blockers were not generic at one point, and SGLT2 inhibitors and uh, ARNIs will become generic in the future. So, you know, while cost is an incredibly important consideration, let's first get the science right. And the science is that we need to give four drugs that affect five pathways to improve outcomes, which is SGLT2 inhibitor. MRA beta blocker and, and, and RNA to these patients. So then the next question is, uh, how do you give these drugs? Now, sequencing has a historical construct, not a biologic construct. It is history of medicine that in the 1980s, we tested ACE inhibitors, in 1990s, we tested beta blockers and MRAs and RNA. in 2018, we tested you know, SGLT2 inhibitor. That is history of medicine. There's no reason to believe that you have to prime the heart by giving first drug, this drug, and that drug, and then the drug will work. In fact, we actually have data that if a drug works, then irrespective of what other drugs you are or are not on, the drug will still benefit. We also know that the most benefit you get is at the lower doses, but of course go on higher doses because there's an incremental benefit, but the most benefit is at low doses, and dose is not an issue with SGLT2 inhibitor, it's just one dose, and it's kind of not an issue with MRA also, you know, 25 milligram perhaps is, is good enough, but it is an issue with beta blockers and, and, and RNA therapy per se. So now the thought process has completely changed. We don't fo focus on, on uh, uh, sequencing uh, at all. Why don't we do it? Well, because A, it takes months on end to go through that sequencing process and the benefit from these therapies is really early. So we put our patients at risk, but this is one of the reasons why we drop the ball and why there are so many opportunities. At the end of the day, when somebody comes in with MI, and I, I realize that inpatient is different than outpatient, but we start five, six classes of medication in three, four days, right? So, so why does it take so long? So right now, the recommendation is to get all four drugs on board 
as soon as possible in two, three, four weeks, at least at low doses, cover all the abnormal pathways, and then slowly go up on the doses of RNA and beta, blocker, uh, beta blockers uh, as needed. Now, a lot of our colleagues are using the word not sequential, but simultaneous. And that is sometimes misconstrued the word simultaneous. So nobody's saying that you start Mrs. Jones on four drugs on Thursday at 12.35 PM all at the same time. By simultaneous idea is don't worry about sequencing on a weekly basis or whatever in two, three, four weeks, get all the medicines on board. Really terrific information there. Uh, a lot that uh, I think will be very valuable to the audience. Any tips about getting these drugs actually approved and, and, and paid for? Obviously, with drugs like beta blockers, that's not an issue. Uh, but, you know, Arnie, for example, uh, there have been some issues, at least in some places I know, getting through these painful pre-auths and, and getting the patient uh, the drug that they actually need. Uh, any tips on how to navigate all that? Yeah, so, I mean, this is a, this is a big issue, right? I mean, clinicians are, are really uh, busy. They have busy clinic. They have sort of the rapid turnaround, you know, maybe 15 minutes with the patient, and, and these things become sort of really difficult. And our clinic settings are not necessarily uh, uh, set up uh, with infrastructure and support to, be, to, to help us with this. Uh, you know, the American College of Cardiology had a, a document called uh, ECDP, Expert Consensus Decision Pathway, uh, and that does deal with, uh, uh, with a lot of uh, these things and how to uh, help with uh, pre-authorization. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of differences and lots of colors and flavors to this thing based on your local insurance uh, market. Uh, and even that uh, changes depending on what uh, uh, sort of insurance you have, even with this, within the same insurance company. So, I mean, my best advice would be uh, to, to talk to your sort of local reps because whatever the offerings are in terms of uh, vouchers or other ways, means of support uh, uh, with these uh, therapies and, and help with the insurance companies, uh, I think they probably have the, the biggest tab. Now, if you look at some of the, the data that are quoted to me is that, you know, uh, X percentage of patients, you know, whatever, 70, 80% of the patients may have coverage for this drug or that drug. But just because they have coverage doesn't mean the patient can afford it because sometimes co-pays of multiple therapies by itself becomes a little bit of a problem. But again, you know, it's important to have shared decision-making. I think patients should be engaged in the decision. I think we owe it to the patients to tell them what are the therapeutic options, what are the potential benefits, what are the costs, and engage the patients and not necessarily decide for the patient of what they can or cannot pay for or use. Uh, but I think this is a, this is an issue uh, uh, that we're dealing with at a societal level. Terrific. And maybe we can just end with a brief discussion of what is going on in the world of devices and what trials to watch for. Yeah, you know, we thought about devices that sort of really end-stage care, right? So left ventricular uh, assist devices and temporary devices like, you know, balloon pump and impellers and whatnot. But boy, the, the, the device uh, things have really sort of evolved. So traditionally, we have already had, you know, defibrillators that we give to patients and cardiac resynchronization therapy or biventricular pacemaker. Uh, but there are so many other uh, devices out there, you know, sleep apnea, cardiac contractility modulation, bearer uh, receptor stimulation, uh, all of these uh, uh, devices have been approved and there are more uh, trials going on, including outcomes trial with, with these devices uh, and other devices for autonomic modulation. Uh, there are devices for reshaping the heart. There are devices for reshaping the mitral uh, annulus. So besides sort of, you know, the, the, the aortic valve and the mitral valve uh, 
uh, clips, uh, there are other ways to sort of prevent worsening of the uh, valvular heart disease. Uh, so this is a really exciting area. Uh, we don't have enough uh, uh, real estate left on the heart to put more wires in, but so we'll have to sort of figure out how we are going to deal with these multiple devices, but a really, really robust field, uh, which is growing right in front of our eyes. Well, there's always wireless technology. I'm sure we'll figure out a way of, of stuffing in more technology. Well, we're out of time. Uh, it's been a great discussion with you as always. Uh, for the audience, I just ask you to stay tuned uh, for our final podcast in this series, where we will discuss decisions in the management of heart failure and cover lots of interesting topics including the one topic we always must cover these days, COVID. So please make sure to tune in for that episode. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash heartfailure5. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.